I'd love to introduce to you our two guest speakers for this morning's topic. We're looking at the huge question, what about homosexuality? Each morning, guys, we're going to look at one of the best and biggest objections to the Christian faith. Tomorrow, we'll look at the question of Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. We'll ask, has science, has evolution buried God? On Thursday, we'll look at suffering in the world today. Has the reality of suffering disproved the existence of a good God? How would we respond to these objections? On Friday, we'll look at the question of sex outside of marriage. And then on Saturday, we have some guest speakers coming. They're going to speak to us about the question of Islam. How can we best speak to our Muslim friends? We'll look at the life of Muhammad, the Quran, and the phenomenon of Islam in the world today. Guys, we face these big questions, and we want help, don't we, in terms of how can we best respond to our friends who are asking us these questions. That's one of the reasons that I'm so pleased to be able to introduce to you now my friends Ed Shaw and Luke Aylan, who've come to speak to us on this question, what about homosexuality? I don't know about you, but as a Christian, the question that I've been asked most in recent years is, okay, you believe in Jesus, what about homosexuality? And then there's been a question related to that. Ed Shaw has been at New Day before. I just want you to know that when I went on summer holiday two years ago, I read Ed Shaw's book, The Plausibility Problem. It's Ed's story of what it's like to be a Christian and also to be attracted to people of the same sex. It's one of those books you read on holiday, and after you finished it, everybody else you're on holiday with, we all read it and we all talked about it. And so I'm really pleased that you're going to meet Ed in just a few minutes. I'm also thrilled that Luke is here. Luke is the creative coordinator for a massive Christian festival that you may have heard of called Spring Harvest. Both of these guys can speak to this subject from a position of authenticity, something that they've walked through themselves. So they're not just opening a book and telling us what the book says, but they've also lived this. So I wonder whether right now you would put your hands together and welcome our guest speakers this morning, Ed Shaw and Luke Aylan. It is great to be with you. Thank you very much uh, for your warm welcome. How we're going to do this seminar is uh, Luke and myself are going to have a bit of a conversation. We're going to tell you our stories. We're going to tell you our stories uh, about Jesus and same-sex attraction. We're going to talk uh, you through what it's been like to follow Jesus with same-sex attraction, how we came to follow Jesus in the, in the very first place. I'm going to do that for about half an hour, and then we're going to hand over to you for questions. We hope that half an hour will produce, uh, uh, in your minds, a number of questions uh, that you want to uh, ask of us. So as we speak, as we have a conversation, do be thinking, what are the questions that, that, that you want to ask? What are the questions that your friends might ask of us? And store those up for about half an hour's uh, time when we begin, when we end uh, the little conversation we're going to have up here on stage. We do have um, just one little request right at the beginning. We're sort of going to lay down some ground rules, or really, it's, it's only one ground rule. This is one of those subjects where it, it, it can all sound great when we talk about up there, but actually for some of us who are in this room today, me and Ed certainly, if not anybody else, this is something which actually is, is here as well. So as we're talking uh, now, as we're asking questions in a little bit, even as we leave this tent and go back to lunch and we might carry on some conversations around this subject, we just would love it if you could be thinking, how can I be talking really gracefully about this? Because we don't always know uh, who might be going through this personally, who might be dealing with these questions. And so uh, just be thinking, actually, how can we be uh, quick to listen, slow to speak? How can we be graceful in all the words we say? Because we want to dig into this stuff, don't we? We want to understand it. 
but we also want to be able to do that in a really loving and really graceful way. So uh, that's hopefully what we're going to try and do over this next hour. Um, but as you go and you go out after this, it'd be great to carry that on. Wonderful. So that we do that, should we, should we just pray for God's help uh, that we might do that? Uh, now let's pray. Father God, your son Jesus was full of grace and truth. And as we talk about this really, really difficult and painful subject of homosexuality, we pray that we would be like Jesus, that we would be full of grace and truth. You know that we can't do that on, your, on our own, so we pray for your Holy Spirit's help, that he might fill us with grace and truth now. If we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke, uh, do you want to kick off by, by telling us your story? So we thought it'd be best to uh, maybe start unpacking some of this story by sharing where we're coming from and our experiences. So I uh, basically, I grew up in a, a Christian home when I was very young. I had a bit of a foundation, uh, grew up in a very rural village, but we were involved in the local church. When I got to about the age of 11, uh, my whole family dropped out of going to church. So I had a little bit of a foundation in what it meant to be a Christian, what it meant to uh, read the Bible, some of the Bible stories. I understood some of that stuff, but I sort of had never really got it sort of, you know, into my life or applied it to my situation too much. When I was 11 years old and I started uh, secondary school, I started that wonderful thing called puberty and I started to realize that I was becoming attracted to people and things like that. I, I gradually realized that actually, whereas most of my male friends were attracted to girls, that wasn't what I was experiencing. I was attracted to the guys, not to the girls. And for a while, I sort of didn't take too much notice of this. It was kind of, you know, thought that'd be fairly ordinary. Maybe this is what everyone experiences. But as that continued, and as even after a few years, I found that I was only attracted to guys, I started to think, well, okay, I think I'm probably gay. I think that's probably who I am. Um, I ended up uh, entering into a bit of a secret relationship with one of my peers. And throughout secondary school, for about four years, I was in this relationship, undercover, not many people knew. Towards the end of uh, my school years, I started to be a little bit more open with some of my friends. I started to sort of say, oh, yeah, I think I'm gay. Uh, people in the school started knowing that. I got a little bit of teasing. but it, like, I, So I sort of was starting to be a bit more open about it. And then when I was 16, I ended up being uh, invited by a very persistent friend uh, to church. And things started to get a little bit more complicated, really. So, so t- tell, us about that. tell us about how... Uh it's always meeting Jesus for the second time. How that affected your journey uh, with your sexuality as well? Yeah. So, so uh, when I went to sixth form college, I had a little bit of a relaxed sixth form college. You didn't have to wear uniforms. It was a different place where I went to secondary school. I took that as my opportunity to suddenly be out and proud. This is who I am. I'm identifying as gay. This is the core part of me. This is what I want people to know about me. And uh, at the same time, my friend who had invited me to church, I'd said no the first time. She invited me to church a second time, I said no again. She kept inviting me until I ran out of polite excuses to say no. So eventually I decided I'd go along to, to this church and start to get involved in the youth group. And I had this sort of dual life, this double life that started to develop. In college, and with my friends in college, I was the, the flamboyant theatre studies student who was identifying as gay. I ended up getting involved with the group who were going underage clubbing in the gay scene in Bournemouth. I 
from the age of 16, was going out in gay clubs and getting involved in the LGBT community. And that was very much a core part of how I identified in my college sphere of friends. At the same time, I had my youth group, Luke, which was sort of the good-looking, nice, well-behaved youth group member who was going to the church, not really mentioning any of that stuff I was doing over there, um, but getting involved. And my, my growing, gradual coming to faith and coming to realize that I thought, yeah, this Jesus guy is real. Yeah, I, I do care about him. I do believe God loves me. These growing convictions didn't really impact that other life over there. And, and gradually over time, I started to feel a little bit of a pulling in two directions. Sort of the, the Christian Luke and the gay Luke were pulling in opposite ways. And, and to begin with, that wasn't too bad, and I could maintain that. But as time went on, it started to become more and more of a tension um, and became much more difficult to try and reconcile. What changed? What changed? Uh, it, it was quite tough. For that, that sort of tension that I was building started to make me think, well, maybe, maybe what I am over here needs to start impacting what I am over here. At first, that was, well, okay, maybe getting really drunk and going underage clubbing isn't the best thing. Maybe I should not do that. Or, or maybe actually being really sexually active and promiscuous, maybe that's not a good thing. Maybe I shouldn't be doing that. But I, I sort of carried on and, and didn't, really, didn't really take too much on there. Um, for me, the really difficult part came when I'd started to become a Christian enough that I thought, okay, yeah, I think I'm a Christian now. I'm going to do what Christians do. I'm going to read my Bible. And so I got my Bible open, and I came up. I developed a very sophisticated, mebula, uh, a very sophisticated way of studying the Bible. I would uh, basically flick the pages and stop and just put my finger in and be, today I'm going to be reading from the contents page. And I, I would do that, and I'd find all sorts of um, passages throughout Scripture, and I'd just start reading there. One day I was doing this sophisticated method of Bible reading, and I landed on a passage in Leviticus, and I giggled to myself, because I saw that the title had the word sexual in it. And if the word sexual was in the Bible, that's sort of amusing. So I thought I'd read this section, and suddenly I was confronted with a passage in Leviticus which said, a man should not lie down with a man as he would with a woman. That is an abomination. I was like, what? How do I deal with this? What, what do I do? I had no idea. How do I look at this passage? How do I engage with what Scripture says? I very naively hadn't even really thought there was going to be any tension between my faith and this side of my life and this identity that I'd taken on and the behavior that I was doing in this area. And I ended up going to two of my friends in the youth group and ask them, uh, well, what do you think about this? What, like, I've read this. I, I don't know what it means. I've looked up some other passages in the Bible which seem to talk about this. I have no idea how to read them, what to do. And I got two completely, completely opposite answers. One of them said, I'm really sorry. I, I don't think I can be your friend anymore. When a gay person comes on TV, my parents turn it off. I, I, like, it, it, if you are gay, if you're attracted to guys, I just don't think I can be friends with you. That's, that's really wrong. I had another friend at the other end who said, it's fine, you can do whatever you want. God just wants you to be happy. And I was like, I have no idea what I believe. I ended up coming and talking to my uh, youth pastor and explaining, I've been reading this stuff. I don't know what I believe. I don't know what the Bible's saying. I feel like God perhaps does care about this part of my life and I don't know how to process it. And, and he was wonderful. He helped. He said, let's just meet up. Let's look at some of the passages together. Let's work through some of these. And I started to dig into, well, what do I believe about what the Bible's saying? 
And why did you take the Bible seriously? Because, you know, the culture around us, you, you said you've got friends that were saying it's fine. Why, why take the Bible seriously when it comes to your sex life today? Yeah, I think, I think I'd start to realize that when I just let my desires and my sexual desires and the things I wanted to do and the guys I wanted to be with, when I let that rule my life, it ended up getting pretty messy, really. And it's so, it was so fickle. It was so changing. It just went uh, this way and that way. And um, it just was getting me in a bit of a mess. And as I started to learn more about Jesus and come to really follow him, I, I realized that what was revealing to me Jesus and what was showing me him and what was helping me to embrace this amazing new life I was encountering was the Bible. I was learning about him through the Bible. And so I started to think, well, if, if I care about God and if I think God's important and God's provided his word, this amazing resource to help me re- reveal Jesus to me, to help me understand him, fall in love with him more, to learn what it is to be a follower of him, maybe I need to start grappling with it and engaging with it and looking at what it says. So for me, that was kind of why I started to, to, to look at that. Uh, and what was the turning point in your life when you, as it were, turned away from what we could say is, you know, so gay lifestyle, promiscuous lifestyle, and decided to be celibate, to be somebody that isn't having sex, that's committed to singleness? Yeah, well, I think, um, so the turn from the more promiscuous side, the more sleeping around, partying, that side was a gradual process as God challenged me on, on different points, and that wasn't actually directly connected to specifically being that I was gay clubbing or that I was sleeping with guys. That was uh, these broader principles that I seem to see within scripture. Uh, And then it reached a point where theologically I thought, well, okay, maybe I should be saving sex for marriage, but I I think I I could get married to a guy. I think that would be fine. Uh, And I ended up being in a relationship with a guy. I hadn't really told my church about that. And uh, I, I actually had my first sort of experience of the Holy Spirit sort of speaking into me and challenging me on something. And I wasn't doing anything spiritual in the slightest. I was just at home in the evening, in my bedroom, and I suddenly felt a real sense of unease. I felt a real sense of God saying, Luke, stop, I want to address something. And I was like, oh, hello, Lord, I've never really heard you, <laughs> sort of prompting me in that way. And so I started to pray into it and thought, well, well, God, what are you trying to say to me? And I got a real sense of God saying, Luke, I don't want you to be in this relationship. This isn't what, what I have planned for you. This isn't what I want for you. I was like, no, God, I think you've got this a little bit wrong. I'm really enjoying this relationship. It's really great. It's, oh, I, I'm fine. No, no, you're definitely wrong. God was like, no, no, Luke, I'm not wrong. I, I, this isn't what I have planned for you. And I grappled and wrestled with God for a little bit for, a, for an hour or so. Eventually, I felt this really firm conviction which was so outside of myself. I, I didn't have a theological position which justified this. I certainly didn't desire to, to, to be believing this, but I got this really strong conviction that God was saying, Luke, I, I want you to be single. I want you to be um, single for me. And I rang up my youth worker at something like one in the morning, poor bloke, and I, I told him, this, this is kind of what I feel God's saying. This is the situation. And, and it reached a point where I thought, actually, if I believe God is challenging me on this, I want to be able to say that every time I've, I've clearly heard God speaking to me, I've followed what he's done. I've done what he asked me to do. And so uh, I ended up from that point thinking, well, okay, I'm, I'm going to try and pursue this call to singleness that God seems to have placed on me, this, this call to singleness 
because of the situation I'm in. But I didn't theologically believe it. So then began six months of basically just feeling really sorry for myself and absolutely miserable and angry at God saying, well, why did you make me this way? Why do I experience this? And that you're telling me I can't enjoy a relationship. Why are you making me feel so miserable, God? This is so unfair. None of my peers are having to deal with this. So I threw myself this big sort of pity party. And after six months, I was at an event in the summer, much like this, and I was being prayed for something completely different. And in the middle of that, a lot of this anger at God came out, a lot of this frustration, a lot of this confusion, um, all these emotions which I'd locked up inside came out, and I was just crying out, why is this happening to me, God? And then in the middle of that, God kind of stopped me in my tracks. I got another sense um, of the Holy Spirit sort of questioning me. And, he, and, he, and he saw, I, I felt like he was asking me two questions. The first was, Luke, how, is there anything you can give up which compares to what Jesus has given up for you? And I was like, well, probably not. Jesus did give up quite a lot for me. Actually, whatever sacrifice God might ask from me, it probably doesn't really compare to what he's done for me. The second question I felt God ask was, Luke, if, if even one person can come to know me as a result of you giving this up, is it worth it? And I thought, actually, do you know what? There is nothing, nothing we have which would be worth too much to give up if the alternative was for somebody to come to faith. Nothing we have is worth more than somebody coming to relationship with Jesus. And so... I felt, I was a bit like, oh, okay, sorry, God, I've been feeling really sorry about myself, and I've been feeling really rubbish about this sacrifice. Actually, your sacrifice was bigger. And from that point, even though at that time I still didn't really theologically understand it, I thought, well, if God's calling me to this, if God's sacrifice is bigger than this, if this sacrifice is going to be worth it, then I want to press into that. And then I was able to start exploring a little bit more theologically what I did believe. And uh, slowly as I perhaps took a step back from just being ruled by what I wanted in a relationship and being able to have some space to look at what did the Bible really say, what was I engaging with, um, my view did, did start to change as I looked at what I thought Scripture said. Yeah, so, so, so tell us about what Scripture says. So you believe that sex is for marriage between a man and a woman, which means that if you're in our position, you're same-sex attracted, God calls us to sing on us and not to have sex and not to get married. What, what, in, what in God's words made you believe that and keeps you believing that uh, today yeah i think the the first place if you go on any blog online if you google christians and homosexuality there will be uh, loads of arts uh, loads of articles about the clobber passages the 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 six six bits in the bible which talk about homosexuality and i looked at these and i read through these and i started to grapple with these and i think they they lend a huge amount to the conversation the debate and they they are really important, and I, I did start to draw stuff from that. But the thing which really convinced me, what well, were two things really, was one, as I started to look at how God had designed us and how God had designed us in our sexualities, because we are created as sexual beings. God has created that in us, so that is a part of us. But as I looked at Scripture, I started to see, well, in Genesis, the, the relationship that God had created seemed to point towards a male-female relationship. When Jesus talks about relationships, he references that passage in Genesis, so that's why a man leaves his wife. So I started to think, well, the, the biblical way of looking at marriage seems to be between a man and a woman. So that was part of it. But then the, the more important part, which kind of builds off that, was that I saw that marriage in itself wasn't the end goal. Marriage is a reflection of a much, much bigger picture. 
marriage is a reflection of the whole meta-narrative, the big story of Scripture, of God wanting to be united with us, the church, as his bride. And so that marriage wasn't just something that's about me and what I want, but marriage is actually a reflection of God's relationship to us. And I think for me, those, those have been the main things which have really convinced me uh, of where I stand now. Um, and sort of seeing how the union and difference we get in a marriage between a man and a woman is parallel between the union and difference we get between God's son Jesus and the church, and that the difference matters. Yeah, and even, even with God himself, because uh, we believe God is one, but we believe God is three. God is, is one, but he's trinity. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. There's sameness and there's difference. And, and when Genesis talks about how we image God, we are made in his likeness, it doesn't say he created Adam and Adam imaged him. He said he created them, male and female, he created them. So I think that the way we image God, it's not just as man and wife, but it says as humanity, it says as us, as people, and that sameness and difference is a key part of it. So for me, that, that was one of the big convincers, really. But I mean, I've heard quite a lot of my story. I think it'd be great to dig into Ed's as well a little bit. So Ed, why don't you share um, some of your experience and where you've come from in your story? That was a smooth transfer, wasn't it? Very <laughs> good. Um, like Luke, I grew up in a Christian home, but perhaps unlike Luke, I, I was one of those people that have never, have never walked away from Jesus. I've always believed and trusted in him um, and grew up in a family where we were uh, encouraged to do that, encouraged to pray, encouraged to read our Bibles, and encouraged to live life wholeheartedly uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Which meant that in my teenage years, when I, like Luke, started to experience sexual feelings and started to feel that my attractions were actually not to the girls I was growing up with, but some of the guys I was growing up with, I had that same sort of tension, but perhaps a greater tension, because I called myself a Christian, I believed in the Bible, I knew that sex was just for marriage between a man and a woman, but I wanted to have sex with some of the guys that I was growing up with. And I found that really difficult. And I coped for a long time by thinking it's just a teenage phase. Um, I'm going to grow out of this um, and I'll get married and have kids and everything will be fine. When I was 28, I realized at last that puberty was probably over and that I was no longer a teenager and that this probably wasn't a phase. And at that point, I had to really think through how am I going to live my life? The expectation within so many Christian communities, isn't it, is that you will sort of grow up as a Christian, you'll perhaps go off to college or university, you'll get a job, and then you'll get married and have kids. That clearly wasn't going to be a reality uh, for me. And so I really had to sit down and think and pray and talk with people about how I was going to live as a Christian, somebody who wanted to follow Jesus, um, but also how I was going to live with the same sex attraction that God had given me. So, so what did that sort of look like? Because, I mean, if, you, if you've grown up in a Christian home, then often one of the responses people who are not Christians might say is, oh, but you've just inherited that. You've sort of been brainwashed by your church into believing that. So uh, at what point did you sort of grapple with that personally and, and come to believe that personally? And, and what did that look like? What was it that convinced you? We grew up, don't we, in a society. I grew up in a society. We're, we're all growing up. We're all living in a society where most people are saying... Um, to have sex with somebody of the same sex is fine. To get married to somebody of the same sex it is fine. So the culture around me was saying, don't be so stupid. Grow up. Leave this Christian stuff behind. Leave this stuff that your parents have told you about sex and marriage behind. Embrace the gay identity. Embrace the gay lifestyle. 
And I found that really attractive. I still find that really attractive. But like Luke, my experience was, was basically going to God's words and being convinced in God's words that God loved me. That God loved me so much that he sent his son to die for me. To die in, in, in physical and spiritual agony on the cross for me. And that meant that if he said something wasn't good for me, I could trust him because he has a track record of loving me. I wanted to go to the God who had died for me and say, God, you have got it wrong on this. You don't love me if you say that I can't have sex, I can't get married. But I don't know about you, I can't look the God who loved me enough to send his son to die for me and say, you don't love me in this area. I don't trust you in this area. You've got it wrong in this area. God in his love died for me, and God in his love for me says to me, the best way for you to live as a Christian who experiences same-sex attraction is to enjoy the great gift of singleness that my son Jesus enjoyed, that the apostle Paul enjoyed, that thousands and millions of other Christians have enjoyed down the ages. Because one of the things I think so often lost in this whole area is we forget that, yeah, marriage is great and it's a great gift from God, but also the gift of singleness is great. It's an amazing gift from God too. But what does that sort of look like? Because we, we say sort of singleness is a great gift, but actually it, it's tough at times, isn't it, as well? But, but what, what, how have you found being single and, and pursuing that lifestyle and exploring being a Christian that way? Is it, is it something that's easy to do? Is it something that's hard? Is it, how have you found that? Loads of people think that if you're single, you're going to be deprived of a whole number of things. One thing people think you're going to live without is Intimacy. People think that if you, don't, if you don't get married, if you don't have a sexual relationship, you are going to sort of drop inside because you're never going to have an intimate, deep, meaningful relationship with anybody. That is rubbish. It is really possible. In fact, sometimes being single makes it more possible to have deep and intimate non-sexual relationships with people than being married does. I thought that living life this way would mean dying slowly of loneliness. When actually, the gift of singleness that God has given me has meant that I have a whole range of relationships, a whole range of intimate, deep relationships, friendships that keep me going in life. I thought God was saying no to intimacy. Culture tells me that God say no to intimacy. But actually, God was saying, you're just going to get the intimacy we all need as human beings in different ways. Uh, the other thing that I think people think that I'm being told if, uh, you know, because I've been asked to be single, is I'm never going to experience the joy of family. I, I'm going to never have my own children. And again, that's something I've got quite depressed about at times, thinking I'm never going to hold my own child in my arms. I can remember a time a few years ago just being really depressed about that. As I saw a friend of mine uh, sort of come with their first child, a couple that I know, come with their, their first child to church for the very first time. And everybody's gathering around them saying, oh, doesn't he look just like his dad? And I thought to myself, I'm never going to have that experience. Nobody's ever going to say of me, doesn't he look just like his dad? And then later on that summer, I was speaking to a, a Christian friend, and he had met somebody I discipled on an event like this. And he said to me, Ed, he was just like you. I could tell that you had discipled him. I could tell that you were his spiritual dad from the way that he's developed and grown as a Christian. So God will have given many people in this room the gift of singleness. And the danger is, if he has, we'll want to take it back and get a refund. 
The reality is it's a very precious gift. Intimacy, you can get it and be single. Family, you can enjoy it and be single. And a whole host of other things too. And, and, and what, I know when, so I, as I live singly, I know that sometimes that can, that can be really tough and that can be really difficult. And, it, and people describe it as a gift. And you read in the Bible that it's a gift to singers. And you're like, well, this is one gift I really wish I didn't have. It's like the worst birthday present ever. Like what, what is, what's proven helpful to you? And, and what, what can friends do to support you if, you're, if you think you are called singers and you think this is how you need to respond to God with your sexuality? What have been the really helpful ways do you think that God, uh, that your community and your friends and your family have, have helped you in this side of things? Well, I think one of the things that really helped me is to look at Jesus and recognize that he was single, that he had this gift, that he enjoyed this gift. And if we want an example of human life lived at its best, in its fullness, of course we look to Jesus. And Jesus was single. Jesus never had sex. And he lived life in all his fullness. In asking me to be single, Jesus isn't asking me to do anything he wasn't able to do himself. So I'd love to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul talks about the gifts of marriage and singleness and says something that we don't often hear in the church today. He says that singleness is actually, in many ways, a better gift than marriage. He points out that it, it means that you can be more devoted to the Lord. You can spend more time with Jesus. You can be more single-minded in following him because you're not having to worry so much about a husband and wife at home or kids. He says you can do more for the kingdom. You can get involved in ministry more for the kingdom if you're single. And that's certainly been my experience. I've been able to do more for Jesus as a single man than many of my married friends have. And the wonderful thing in God's economy and the kingdom of God is that the more you give to it, the more you receive. And I've received blessing upon blessing upon blessing in a life as a single person, in my life as a single person, in a whole host of ways. I've got 13 Godchildren. 13 uh, parents have said, look, we want you to be involved in the bringing up of our children. I've got loads of really close friends. Just been, uh, last week it was in Norfolk, I'm on holiday with a group of 12 friends. We've been holidaying together for the last 12 years. I've got a church family that means my life in Bristol, which is where my church is, isn't one of sort of loneliness and living in a house with 100 cats and nobody else. It's one of being, it's one of being part of a community, a living, breathing family. So those are the things that have helped. I'm just really impressed that Ed can remember 13 birthdays. I can't even remember like my mum and dad's birthdays. That's really good. But I think I, I mean I totally relate with a, a lot of what you say. I think it it's one of those those areas where it can feel so tough to experience it. But I know when I first was grappling with with God calling me to singleness, and I really really didn't want to do this, and I was praying, God, why are you doing this to me? Take it away. Why can't I just be like my friends who don't have to journey with this? And, and God's response to me in the end was uh, what He says to Paul. Paul, there's a period uh, in one Corinthians where he's praying, Lord. I've got this problem, take it away. I've got this, this thing I'm finding difficult, take it away. I'm finding this thing really difficult, take it away. And God's response is, my grace is sufficient for you because my uh, strength is found in weakness. And I know for me, as I've, as I've journeyed through, actually, um, to begin with, I would have really wished that I could just be like my, my friends who were attracted to girls, found it easy. Um, well, it's not easy, but I, I thought at the time it was really easy. Um, and God's response to me has been, actually, no, because this is requiring you to throw yourself time and time again into my arms, to push yourself into my grace, to rely on me. And it's definitely been one of the things which has most actually impacted my relationship with God and brought me closer to him. So um, 
it's great to hear. That's similar for you. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, a particular verse that's been precious to me is, uh, you know, some words that Jesus addresses to his disciples when they first grasped who he is. And he says this, this is um, Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. Then he called, that's Jesus, called the crowd to him uh, along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And to be honest, that's what it often feels like. Say no to sex, say no to marriage. It feels like taking up a cross. But Jesus goes on. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his life? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes with his Father's glory and with the holy angels. God is saying, in, Jesus is saying to people like you and me who want to follow him there, yeah, you'll have to give up loads to follow me. As I've given up loads so that you can be in my family. But it will be worth it. Anything you give up will be worth it in the very long term. Luke, just before we hand over for questions, um, talking to friends, unbelievers about this issue is a really tricky thing. What advice would you give to people who are responding to questions from people who aren't yet Christians about this subject? Um, any sort of advice you've got to give? Yeah, I think, I think it's this, the title of this session, What About Homosexuality? That is one of the questions which I know I encounter when I share my faith with friends, even as somebody who's like, well, I'm, I experience same-sex attraction, I'm a Christian, so clearly there's some sort of way to be able to balance it. But it is the big, big question that we encounter so often whether that's in school or college or work or uh, families or friends or, or whatever situation. And um, it can be a really difficult one, can't it? It'd be that one where we start sweating and thinking, oh, no, I've got to know the, uh, the great three-point theological argument which can put this person down and I can tell them this is, this is how it's all resolved. And so often we, we don't have that. And the first thing I guess I'd say, if you have friends who are asking those questions, do you know what? It's actually all right not to know all of the answers. That can come across as far more authentic and real and genuine than just trying to blag an answer and knowing you're not really doing it that well. So, so one, we don't actually have to blag all the answers and answer all the questions. Uh, sometimes, I think, actually, when we're asked questions, we've got to try and work out what's the deeper motivation behind it. What's the situation? Does this person have a friend who's gay, who they're worried about? Is there, is there another situation behind? Jesus, when he's asked difficult questions, often responds with a question of his own to try and dig deeper, to try and reveal something else. And I wonder if sometimes we can use that technique. The other thing which I think takes the pressure off us a little bit is that actually, for a non-Christian who's coming to talk to me about faith, the, the ethics of homosexuality isn't actually the most important thing that I want them to hear. The most important thing I think that I'm called to do with that person is to reveal to them Jesus, to, to share with them the good news, the amazing gospel message that we have. And, and, and so actually, I've said to people before, I'm like, great question. To be honest, let's come back to that in a bit, because none of it, sort of, none of it makes sense unless you understand all this amazing stuff about Jesus first. When people come to know Jesus, when people come to love Jesus, when they grow in their faith with Jesus and they want to follow him with everything they have, then the conversation we have about sex before marriage or uh, homosexuality or all these things is a very different one because we, we know Jesus, we love Jesus, we want to follow him uh, with all the things in our lives, including our sexualities. So for me, I think we can almost 
relax a little bit rather than breaking a sweat immediately when people talk to us and think, well, actually, my most important thing with this friend is to make Jesus known to them, is to share Jesus, is to help them encounter Jesus. And when we encounter Jesus, we believe that God's Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. God himself dwells in us and transforms us and changes us more and more into the image of Christ, into the image of who we are meant to be, of the image of how we are designed to be. And through that process, I I genuinely believe the Holy Spirit will will definitely make it a much easier experience to, to be talking about and engaging in these issues because God does change us. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, I hope that you recognize ways in which God has challenged you or God has brought you on or God has, has, has brought up certain issues in your life which even a year ago or two years ago would, would have been a very different situation. So I think we need to trust God. We need to make Jesus known are probably the two things that I, that I first do. And then we come back to that question later on when it's in a place of relationship where there's a really great depth of love and they know that I want the best for them. So... Yeah, I've got a friend who says that actually the big question we need to tell people, is perhaps when they ask us about this, is actually say what you really need to work at is whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you can ignore everything he said. If Jesus did rise from the dead, you've got to start taking him seriously. And as much as you can, just help people to look at you know, the central claims of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Because people are only going to see the sense of giving up big things to Jesus when they've got that Jesus has given up everything for them. We're going to stop uh, talking now, I think. Uh, We are. And uh, we're going to hand over to questions. And I think what's going to happen is there is going to be a microphone there. There already is a microphone there. There's a microphone there. And if you've got a question, this is your chance now to sort of come down to the nearest microphone and cue behind. And uh, we'll ask... Uh, we'll answer your questions in turn. We'll probably take a sort of three or four or five questions sort of in close succession, then answer them, and then um, go on to the next one. And we'll keep going almost as long as uh, you want to. Not quite, but almost. So a little bit of chance uh, for people to make their way to the front. You might want to sort of chat in a small group about a question you want to ask and then send a sacrificial lamb up to the front to ask it for you. And we'll go to the microphone that has the biggest cue first. Great. This microphone has won. There is nobody at that microphone. There is another microphone there, but this microphone has won. So we're going to have, if we can just have the, the people, so five people or five or six people from behind that microphone asking their questions, one after another, and then we'll answer them. Question number one. How can someone with this issue deal with the unavoidable temptations of everyday life? And how can they have healthy same-sex relationships if they feel like their attractions are a barrier to this issue? Great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Do you want to go again? We'll get a few questions and then we'll probably answer a few in, a go, in one go. So. Um, I know you said you don't have relationships with men or sleep with them. But do you think having an attraction is still a sin that can stop you from going to heaven? Lovely. Uh, should we go for one from over here? Yeah. So, you guys are both um, love your testimony. Thanks for that. Thanks for sharing. Um, you've both chosen a life of singleness, and I just wondered for some people um, who identify as same-sex attraction, do you think it's okay for them to pray to ask God for attraction to the to the other sex? Is it, did you ever experience that? I just thought that might be quite an important thing to cover. Great. Thank you. Should we get one more, and then we'll 
we'll go for over here. here. One more over here. You've got the longer queue. Similar kind of question. Um, I think in Christian culture, there tends to be a lot of people that condemn those in the LGBT community, saying, like, you're going to hell or God doesn't love you anymore. Or um, What's your kind of, like, Westboro Baptist Church, I think, is an obvious example of that. What's your response to those Christians that do that, to even those that don't act on their same-sex attraction as well? Great. Okay, we're going to kick off, and we're going to work backwards, actually, because that one's now fresh in my mind. Um, that question is just pointed out. There are many people in this world today who are genuinely homophobic. Now, that word homophobia is, is banded around a lot, isn't it? What it actually means and how the gay lobby group Stonewall defined it is as an irrational fear and hatred of people just because of their sexual identity. An irrational fear and hatred of people just because of their sexual identity. I hope that all of us in this room would say that homophobia like that is deeply wrong and deeply unchristlike. And one of the things that many people have had to repent of in their life, and many Christians have to repent of, is that sort of attitude to people. That sort of self-righteous, pharisaic attitude towards LGBT people, towards same-sex attractive people. Looking down on them just because they experience same-sex attraction. Just think of how Jesus responded to the people that were hated and marginalized in his society. We as churches need to take the lead from him in loving or in loving LGBT people, in pushing back against any example of irrational fear and hatred of people just because they're gay. So when that happens at your school, when that happens in your youth group, you think that is an example of genuine homophobia. We need to be the first people to say that's wrong, to call it out. Uh, and to change um, that narrative that's around in the world around us that, that people like us, who are Christians perhaps, are, are homophobic in that sense. We need to change. Great. The, uh, the third question we were asked was about um, what about praying for a change in orientation? What about praying to take away those desires? I mentioned a little bit how when I was first really struggling uh, with trying to reconcile my faith and my sexuality... I prayed to God day after day, God, why don't you take away this gayness? Why don't you take this away? Why don't you change it? And, and, and you know what? For all of us, particularly until we're in our early 20s, but even beyond that, it, culture and science and psychologists are actually telling us, yes, there is some level of sexual fluidity. Our sexual orientations can change, do change. Many, many young people experience crushes on members of the same sex, but later on never experience that again later in their lives. So, our sexualities are more complex than these labels that we've put down of gay and straight or same-sex attracted, opposite-sex attracted. Um, so within that, there can be some fluctuation. For some people, they may experience quite dramatic changes in their sexuality. Um, I, I believe, actually, when I was praying day after day, uh, that prayer, God, why don't you take this away? It'd be so much easier if I wasn't gay. Take this away. Why am I attracted to men? God's response to me was, was my grace is sufficient for you. Actually, so far, it doesn't look like he's changed that. It doesn't seem that's what he wants to do. And as a result, I've actually, it's, it's helped me grow in my relationship with God in ways I never would have anticipated. And my, my attraction to, to guys remains at the same level it always has. But what God was showing me is you're asking the wrong question. You should be praying about how can I fall more in, lo- more in love with you, Jesus? And so my attraction for guys has stayed the same, but my attraction for Jesus has increased and increased and increased. And now I think, actually, that's the thing I most want to be. I want to be super attracted to Jesus. Um, and so that's kind, of, that's kind of my take. I don't know if you've got anything else to say. That's no. great. 
Somebody brought up the really uh, helpful sort of question of, you know, is it, is it just wrong to be same-sex attracted? If you are somebody who is attracted to people of the same sex, does that mean you're not going to heaven? Does that mean that you can't be a Christian? Sadly, that is something that some Christians say is wrong. It's certainly something that the devil will say to you again and again and again if you're somebody that experiences same-sex attraction. You can't be a Christian. You can't be a Christian and fancy that guy. You can't be a Christian and fancy that girl. You've got to recognize that that is a lie wherever it comes from. The reality is, is that becoming a Christian is all about recognizing that we are sinners. And Christianity is all for people that are mucked up, which is all of us. If we say you can't have same-sex attraction and be a Christian, we've also got to say you can't be a liar and be a Christian, and you can't be proud and be a Christian, and you can't uh, etc., etc., which means none of us can be Christians. The truth of the gospel is that we believe in a God, we follow a God who forgives and who welcomes people, whatever we might struggle with, whatever temptations might be thrown at us, however much we mark up, he's willing, if we ask him for repentance, if we ask him for forgiveness, he's willing uh, to forgive us. And so that's really important. For instance, you know, when, I, when I'm attracted to a guy, the devil says to me, oh, you've mucked up again. You, are you really a Christian? God says you shouldn't be doing this. I need to remind myself of Jesus' death on the cross for me. I need to remind myself that my identity is not based on who I fancy, but on the fact that God has loved me in Christ from before the beginning of time. And that his love for me and his desire for me is more important than any desire I might have for other people. I also just need to recognize that so often when I'm attracted to somebody, I'm attracted to, just to their beauty. And God has created beauty, and beauty should not make me feel bad. Beauty, wherever I see it, in a sunset, in a painting, in a person, beauty should point me back to him. And instead of feeling guilty about noticing a beautiful guy, I should be thinking to God, thank you for creating beauty. May beauty, wherever I see it, scattered in your creation, lead me to you, my creator. And that's the prayer that I try to pray, so that that experience of same-sex attraction, rather than drawing me away from God's, actually draws me to him. I think the, the, the first question I was great because it kind of builds off that, but, but how if this is something which is very much something you're going through, how do you deal with those temptations? How do you journey day by day when actually you have these, these desires, these unmet desires which you long for? And to some extent, we can ask this for every single one of us. It doesn't matter who we're attracted to. We're going to be experiencing uh, desires and sexual desires about people who we shouldn't be having sex with or we shouldn't be pursuing a relationship with. So to some level, I think this is applicable for every single one of us. And this isn't a situation that's alone for people like me, people like Ed, who are joined with this and same-sex attraction. For me, I've found, actually, the times where I've most focused on my sexuality, focused on my attraction as being the primary thing, and I want to sort this out, uh, that's actually been less fruitful than when I say, I want to focus on a whole life dedicated to God, my whole life. I want to grow closer to him in this area, and this area, and this area, and this, every single part. And as we grow more Christ-like as whole people, it actually does seem to make a bit of a difference when it comes to our sexuality. But I think there are some really good, easy, practical tips which make the journey easier. For me, it's finding friends who I can journey along with or mentors who can uh, give me great, godly, wise advice and who might be able to hold me accountable or might be able to pick me up when I failed or brush me off or cheer me on when I'm finding it really tough. For me, that's been a really important part. Uh, another way has been to uh, just be careful about some of the other things I'm looking at. So actually, 
things like pornography, if I'm, if I'm looking at that, I'm feeling that I'm rewiring my brain to be sexualizing everything I see. If I'm constantly thinking about those things, it can be really tough. So, so what ways can I try and help rewire my brain to be wanting to learn more about Jesus? For me, that is through reading my Bible, through reading scripture, through turning to that, through spending time with friends who are going to help me grow more Christ-like. It's about actually saying, well, Maybe this isn't full pornography, but I know I'm going to watch this solely so I can see the sex scene in this film. Maybe, maybe, maybe for me, that's something I need to, to make some rules within my life about how I operate. And that might not be the same rules for somebody else. I know for me there's certain gray areas which I need to kind of make black and white for me to try and be helpful. I, do you have any tips, Ed? Because you've also... Well, it just, I just say, this. you know, I look for intimacy in inappropriate places like the internet or same-sex relationships, when I'm not enjoying intimacy with Jesus and when I'm not enjoying intimacy with family and friends. So I need to recognize that the, the most important thing for me is to make sure that I'm in a close relationship with Jesus, that I'm spending time with him, that I'm hearing him speak into my life, that I'm, I'm sharing everything I'm going through with him and that that's happening with friends and family too, that I'm hearing them speak God's truth into my life, that I'm sharing what's going on in my life with them. When I'm enjoying intimacy in appropriate good ways, the temptation to experience intimacy in inappropriate, damaging, sinful ways uh, lessens. Right, more questions. So we'll, we'll do... We'll do oh, First there. Um, if God has given gay people the ability to love as straight people do, why would he then frown upon them have? getting married and having those sexual relations like straight people can. Wonderful, thank you. Yeah, should we get one over here? So where would all this leave someone that's bisexual in a relationship with someone from the opposite sex but having same sexual kind of feelings? Yeah, wonderful. So when you're in a relationship, yeah, great. Let's go, or yeah, let's go over here. So do you think having sex outside marriage, outside marriage is upsetting God? Sorry, say that one more time. Do you think having sex outside marriage is upsetting God? Great, thank you. Wonderful, let's go over here. Most hateful prejudice and homophobia comes to uneducation. Do you think learning about gay people in school would help this or not? Great question, thank you. So, uh, wonderful. And should we go for one more over here, then we'll answer some again. Thank you guys for the patience and the cues. Yeah, yeah thanks for your testimony, guys. Um, this, yeah, this, is, this is big for me. So I got an older brother who's gay, and he's planning on getting married next year. So would you go to a gay wedding? I, my convictions have changed. I think a year ago I would have said no, but I'm not too sure now with you know, advice and sort of testimonies from other people. Great, thank wonderful. you. Thank you, Sherry. Should we start with, we'll start with that question. Thank you very much about the question. You know, should you go to a gay wedding? Somebody being potentially going to their brother's gay wedding? This will be an issue in which the really important thing to do is to, is to listen to our consciences and to make sure that as we do that, we're prayerful and that what we, uh, what we do is in the light of God's word. And for me, this is how my sort of conscience has sort of worked out an answer to this question. Should I go to a gay wedding? If it was an unbeliever inviting me to their gay wedding, I think I probably would go because I want to. Uh, the thing I most want for them is to meet Jesus. And so the thing that I most want is for them to, 
still be in contact with Christians and still potentially be in contact with me so I can introduce them to Jesus. And if I make the decision not to go to their wedding because uh, I think a gay wedding is wrong, the danger is that I'm going to make it harder for them to meet with Jesus because they're going to push me away. So I think so often if, it's, if they're not a believer, I'm going to be thinking for the sake of introducing them to Jesus, I want to stick with them and be there. That's what I sort of thought about in conscience today, in the light of what Scripture teaches, prayerfully thinking about that. If they were somebody that was saying they're a Christian and they were asking me to go to a wedding service in which they were saying God is going to bless this marriage and it's a celebration of God's blessing of their marriage, I would probably not go to that wedding because the Bible says that when, when another Christian is heading off into something that would not be good for them and is not good for society as a whole, I need to, in a loving way, signal that by separating from them a little bit. And by helping them to see that they have walked away from Jesus and they've walked away from the Christian church. If you read um, a passage like 1 Corinthians 5, you'll see that that's what Paul urges the Corinthian church to do in a situation of sexual sin. To separate themselves from the sexual sinner, not to judge them, but to help them recognize that they have walked away from Christ. To help them recognize that they need to return uh, to him. And that might be how I would uh, respond in those two slightly different uh, sort of situations, according to my conscience. But it is something that I think is a conscience issue, and you will need to prayerfully think about in the light of uh, God's word. That's really helpful. I I love that question, actually. Well, is it right that we should be, uh, the one about education and schools, is it right that we should be learning about LGBT people, gay people in school, in sex education? And and I guess my my response would be... to one extent, we're always going to have in our schools, even in our friendship groups, people who are expressing and teaching and trying to share views and teach views which perhaps we wouldn't hold to be true or which we think might be contradictory to the Bible. And so to one extent, I think we, we don't necessarily always have the power to, to stop that and to change that. And so what I think is how do we then as Christians engage with that? If we can't stop it, how do we respond? And it's our responsibility in whatever context we're in whether that's in our friendship group, whether that's in our, our school sex education lesson where they're talking about stuff which I think uh, these aren't the values that I hold as a Christian. I think we have the opportunity to be radically cult- countercultural, distinctive Christians. And, and we can share through our understandings, our beliefs, um, what, we, what we believe. And so I think taking some of those opportunities um, to use them to share faith and to explain perhaps where you're coming from can be a really good thing. Um, I think it is actually really helpful um, to be able to listen to and understand the views of those people who we don't agree with. Because actually it's only when we listen and we, we, we grapple with and understand where they're coming from that we can give the right answers or we can speak into to whatever they're talking about. I have a number of friends on my Facebook page who I've been friends with since before I was a Christian, who, uh, one of whom is a, a gay rights activist. And you know what? I love having him as a Facebook friend because he shares these long posts which reveal to me a little bit of his understanding, his arguments, where he's coming from. And by reading those, I can start to think, well, actually, how do I respond to that? What do I think about that? How would I engage in a conversation with him? And then when I am in a conversation, I have a little bit more of an understanding of where someone's coming from, the views they've adopted, and how they've got to those. So I think, um, to some extent, whether it's right or not, um, we don't always have have the chance to stop or or choose what we do, but we do have a chance to respond to the culture around us. 
The early church happened and grew and exploded in a time where the culture around it was sexually so far away from what the Bible taught. Like today, it was a sex-obsessed culture, and much of that wasn't in line with the, the Bible values. That doesn't stop us sharing a biblical understanding of sexuality, of what we're created for, and of sharing the gospel in those contexts. So I think let's try and embrace some of those opportunities is how I'd respond. Thanks very much for the question about sex outside our marriage. Does it upset God? Now, as we think about that, we've got to recognize that many people in this tent would have had sex outside marriage. And um, uh, this is a personal question, and we're thinking, have I upset God? Have I upset God? And we've got to remember that, have we, that, we, that we have all upset God in a whole host of, of ways. Some of us upset God by having sex outside marriage. Others have upset God in, in different ways. But wonderfully in Christ, God has forgiven us. God has restored us. God isn't in a huff with us. God has, if we've asked for forgiveness, welcomed us back in. He's, ran, he's run to meet us in his son. Why, though, then, would God be upset about sex outside marriage? If you want to ask that question, if that question is asked, we need to think for a moment, what, what is sex and marriage there for? Why do we have sex and marriage in this world, in creation? The world around us, the culture would say, just to have fun, just to express commitment to another person. The Bible says something really different. The Bible says that we have sex and we have marriage in creation to point us to God's love for us in Jesus. The reason we have these really powerful sexual feelings is to help us grasp how powerfully God loves us in Christ. That's why we have sexual feelings. God compares himself in in a Bible passage like Ezekiel 16, in a whole Bible book like Song of Songs, he compares himself to a husband passionately in love with his people the church, passionately desiring to be united to ever to you and me. That's why we have sexual feelings. And why do we have this thing called marriage, this lifelong commitment between a man and a woman? Why do we have that? The Bible says we have that to point us to the eternal relationship between God's son Jesus and God's people, the church, to point us to the fact that the whole of history is moving to a great wedding when all of God's people from all times and places will be united in a blissful, better-than-sex relationship with God forever. That's why we have marriage. And so do you see why God would get upset about sex before marriage? Because it's taking a picture he's given us of his passionate, committed, lifelong, eternal love for us in Christ, and it's marring that picture. It's undermining that picture. It's changing that picture in a way that that damages what has been given to us, sex and marriage, as the great picture of God's love for us in Christ, as the great picture of where this world is heading. That's why God is upset. But also... Keep remembering, God can forgive. And God can forgive any of us for anything. Starting to run a little bit later on the time. So I'm going to answer one more question. Then we're going to have 30 seconds. Well, if you need to go away and get your spag bowl, you can escape from the room. We'll probably stick around and do a couple more questions after that. Um, so I'd love to just answer that, that first one we had uh, about what, what if God has created us that way? If God's created us with the ability um, as, as a gay person to love a man, why would that be wrong? And, and I guess the question behind that is, is well, what makes you gay? Did God create you to be gay? Is that, 
because of uh, genes? Is that because of the way you were brought up? Is that because God has created you that way? And, um, and I think I find, for me, the, the question is, I'm created in a way, and I, well, I experience as a human being all sorts of desires and things which are, are natural to me. They are things I've always experienced. I haven't chosen them. But not all of them are ones which are directed towards God or directed towards what the Bible suggests and teaches me is the way that I should honor God. And so the question we really need to be asking is not, why am I this way? Or if God created me like this, or, or if, if this is natural to me, why can't I respond like that? But it's rather, well, this is the situation I find myself in. This is the desires I have. How do I honor God with this? How do I seek to, to lay down this part of my life to be a disciple? And the way I think, the most reliable way we can find that is to turn to Scripture, is to look at what we believe Scripture teaches us and what guidelines Scripture places around us. So that's a very brief sort of question from my side. Wonderful. I'm going to ask you to thank Luke and Ed in just a second. Can I mention three quick things? First of all, we're going to have a 60-second break right now, and then Luke and Ed are going to continue to take questions from now to 1 o'clock. Then the tent will get shut. Also, at 2 o'clock this afternoon, you can come and meet Luke and Ed. We're going to be in the Engage tent, which is uh, quite a large white tent behind this one. From 2 o'clock, you can come and meet with them, chat more about this. Obviously, there are loads of questions. We can't get to all the questions, but we've got some more time now for half an hour, then at 2 o'clock. Secondly, there's going to be a phone number that will appear on the screens in a moment. If you would like to talk to them, but you know what? You just want to talk to one person without anybody else listening in then there are people on site that would love to talk to you and help you with the questions that you have. So we're going to have a a 60-second break right now. Could you quietly leave if you need to leave? Please stay for more questions. Why don't you put your hands together and thank Luke and Ed as they continue to answer questions. God bless you. We're going to go straight into answering some more questions. There are some people on the microphone here. Do you want to ask your question? Let's kick off straight away. Um, what would you say, have you ever had people say, oh, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Adam? And what would you t- say to someone who's had that? Yeah, so in today's culture, where it's so open, uh, and someone is often frowned upon to, to, ha- to not support like, the LGBTQ movement. Like, uh, what would you say, uh, like, how would you, what would you give the biblical justification for not supporting that kind of, that kind of thing for... Uh, and also, how do you not make them feel dejected after without saying just saying this? It's in the Bible, so I'm not I'm not supporting it. Uh, actually, while the final people leave, I might just pick up on that. Somebody asked a question about bisexuality, which we didn't get around to you. You know, some people find themselves attracted to people of uh, their sex and the opposite sex. What should they do? Like any of us, if you're bisexual, I think you know, we're bi- like a lot of if you're bisexual, you've got the choice of either you know embracing the gift of, of marriage, of marrying somebody of the opposite sex, or embracing the gift of singleness. So if you find yourself somebody who's attracted to people of the opposite sex and the same sex, you've got that that choice between you know, shall I embrace the gift of marriage, shall I embrace uh, the gift of singleness, and, and thinking that through. And I just encourage you to think about which of those gifts from God uh, you want to pursue, and perhaps, and also just be open and honest about those feelings with anybody that you might be going out with and to get the advice uh, and input of a wiser Christian too. Um, as a church, how, like, how do we learn to love people and love others despite our sexual preferences and minor differences? How do we learn to love people who have different sexual preferences? So, love, yeah, lovely. Wonderful. Should we go down this side again? Um, if you've been called to singleism, do you think it's wrong to be attracted to uh, other people still? 
Great, thank you. And down here. Um, as you said, being gay is something that you, that was natural. Can, can you go a little bit closer to the mic for me? Is that all right? Sorry, it's um, very tall, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, as you said, being gay is something that came naturally for you. Um, in most countries, being gay could end up for you being killed or going into prison, being prosecuted. Do you think those punishments for being gay would like make someone not be gay anymore, even though it's natural for them? Great, thank you. Great question. Uh, should we answer some of those, or do you want to get all the questions down? Let, let's go for those, otherwise we'll those. explode. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll pick up on that. We seem to be doing it all in backwards time for some reason, so let's go for that again. Um, yeah, it's true that in, in many countries around the world, uh, homosexuality is illegal. Gay people might be put into jail, they might be beaten, they might be even put to death for being gay. And I think my personal view in this is that every single human life has dignity. Every single human life is valuable and precious to God. And actually, we should fight against and campaign against persecution of people for whatever views. Actually, even for people of other religions, if they're being persecuted and put to death, I think as Christians, we want to say, no, these people's lives are valuable, and we want to be able to stand up for that. So um, in terms of, of whether it would change someone's attraction to have the fear of that punishment lying over you, I wonder whether, uh, for me, I, I guess if I try and imagine myself in that context, which I'm obviously not, so that's fairly hard, uh, I, I don't have any control over these, these desires that I have in terms of getting rid of them or keeping them. Um, in those sorts of settings, perhaps I would not make them known. Perhaps I would um, not reveal that to anybody for fear of that punishment. Um, but in terms of what create, makes us gay or straight or attracted to men or attracted to women, um, I, it doesn't seem to be within my control to choose who I'm attracted to. Otherwise, it would have been much easier when I was a teenager to just choose to be attracted to um, girls. So I guess that's my answer. I hope that answers the question. Unless you have any wisdom, should we go on to the... There's a good question about singleness. If you've got the gift of singleness, is it wrong to fancy people? Then we've got to say that whether you've got the gift of singleness or got the gift of marriage, you will continue to fancy other people. That is just a reality. You will continue to find other people attractive. You'll continue to be wowed by other people's beauty. That is just what will happen. The key thing for you, whether you've got the gift of singleness or the gift of marriage, whether you're single or married, because if you're single, you've got the gift of singleness. If you're married, you've got the gift of marriage. The key thing is, is not to feel guilty about noticing beauty, but to make sure, as it were, you don't take that and change that into lust and into... Um, what would they look like if they didn't have any clothes on? Or what would it be like to have sex with them? And et cetera, et cetera. It's not wrong to notice beauty, but it's wrong to want to consume beauty in a selfish and in a sexual way if you're not married to somebody. And so that would be what I'd say in response to that very good question. Cool. There was the question about, um, which is a wonderful question, how do we actually love people who have different sexual preferences, people who might identify as gay or bisexual or, or any other label that there is? And to some extent, I almost want to reframe the question because really, it's kind of the same way that we would love any other person. We could put any label there. How would I love um, a homeless person? How would I love a person who wears top hats? How would I love a person who really likes listening to rock music? There's, there's all sorts of labels and identities that our culture likes to place onto us. And, and I think as Christians, 
we need to, as human beings, we have to use some of those labels, otherwise we wouldn't really be able to describe or talk about anything. But we've got to remember those labels are actually only helpful to a certain point. They only um, tell you a certain amount, and they can be quite big generalizations. And, and as Christians, we believe there's a deeper, truer identity to every single human being. That's that they are made in the image of God, and they are a loved, loved, loved child of God. Whether or not they know him, God loves them. They are valuable, they are precious. And that is the identity that we need to be um, basically revealing to people, to say, you are more than the, the jumper you wear. You are more than the TV series that you're addicted to. You are more than the people you're attracted to. That is not, that is not the end of your identity. And, and so for me, I think it is revealing to people that God loves them and helping to, to reinforce and reveal to them that true, deeper identity, which is far, far more stable and solid than an identity that's built upon my desires of what I might like in different areas. So, so I guess that would kind of be what I say is, it, how do we love people normally? And that's the same steps that we would do for loving someone who has different sexual desires to us. There was a helpful question about the gay rights movement, how do we interact with it? I think one of the things we need to say about the gay rights movement is, is that it's done some great stuff. It is a good thing that people are not now pers uh, pe people in this country aren't persecuted uh, for being gay. It's good that people talk more about sexuality in ways they didn't before. And a lot of that is due to the gay rights movement and the work that they've done. But we also want to say to the gay rights movement, please, please, please preserve the freedom of Christians like us to live life our way as you have fought to preserve your freedom to live life your way. And at this time in history, that's one of the things I'm saying to friends who are involved in the gay rights movement, you have got, you have got freedom to live life your own way. You've got freedom now to talk about your views on this subject. Can you work hard to preserve the Christian church's freedom to live life their way and to share what we think on this subject too? Yeah, we had, a, we had a question about, have you ever had someone come to you and say, well, God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, or Adam and Adam? And, and, and we, do, we, we hear things like that going around. And what I guess I'd encourage people is to say, as Christians, let's try and be graceful when we're talking. Because actually, if that's the way we're communicating an argument, it's, it's not actually going to be overly helpful to somebody. Uh, it can kind of stop the conversation in its tracks. Because it, to some extent, there's some truth and there's some, there's some stuff we want to explore from that. God did seem, God, well, God did create man and woman. There seems to be a significance to that. We are created in his image, male and female. He created them. So there is, there is importance in the fact that God created Adam and Eve. Just from a purely practical point of view, if it was Adam and Adam, we wouldn't have lasted very long as the human race. Uh, one of God's commands was to go out and multiply. But I think the other thing we need to remember is that uh, Adam and Eve are not just the archetype of marriage. They're not just the, the blueprint of marriage. They're the blueprint of community. They're the blueprint of friendship, of being a helper, of the human race. Adam and Eve's names literally mean that Eve means mother of all the living. It is a catch-all term for humankind. So um, I think we need to be careful about how we use some of these sort of oversimplified and rhyming but sounds quite cool as a put-down um, sort of arguments and, and we think we want to go a bit deeper in this, we want to be a bit more nuanced and ultimately we really want to be loving and caring in the way that we talk about these things um, but a great question great, great question Okay, back to the microphone cues and we'll start here Hi, How do you think Christians should re uh, react to gay relationships, gay people being um, 
portrayed in, in secular media. Should we celebrate that this means we're moving away from homophobia as a society, or should we um, not want to go and see them and avoid them because it's not showing our values and promoting things that we don't believe in? Thanks. Uh, this microphone. Um, so say there's a situation where somebody's entered into a gay marriage and following that they become a Christian and obviously feel the conviction of God. Is it right for them to then get a divorce? Great, thank you. Um, touching on your LGBT comment, so what's your take on Christians that go to Pride and they push and they push their views and they have massive posters and is that freedom? What is that? So the Christians who protest at Pride yeah. or, or the Christians who support Pride or both? No. Christians that protest that pride, you know, with the Great. big signs and all of that. Thank you. Lovely. Uh, so would it be a sin to be, in a, to be attracted or in a relationship with a gender-fluid or non-binary person considering the whole Adam and Eve thing? So, uh, so in a, is that in a opposite-sex relationship with somebody who would identify that or just in any relationship? Just in a relationship with a gender-fluid or non-binary person. Great, thank you. Are we going to be here? Um, my question is specifically about um, celibacy but love as well. Um, what happens when you actually fall in love with somebody of the same sex? Because like, you're talking about celibacy and how, um, like, in terms of avoiding same sex, like, same sex sexual like, interactions and all that sort of stuff. But what happens when you actually do fall in love with somebody of the same sex? Like, how do you deal with that or how do you cope with that? And do you think that um, a gay person can love um, somebody of the same sex? Like, can that, is that love recognizable in the eyes of God, or is it just um, lust? Great, thank you. And it looks like one more person over here. Wow. Yeah, um, first of all, I'd like to say a big thank you to you both. Um, my question is, there's a general belief that uh, when you're you have attraction to someone of the same sex it's um it, it's down to abuse in the past um so i would say what are your thoughts on that and also from your own kind of experience what can you actually say about that belief great thank you some wonderful wonderful questions in there do you want to kick off or? yep thank you for that question there are a lot of number of people who say that the reason or the cause of same-sex attraction in people is to do with one example would be abuse in the past or another example would be a bad relationship with your same-sex parents there's a whole number of theories around which sometimes makes sense for some people but the danger is that often people sort of as it were foist an explanation on people so i have been told that I must have been sexually abused as a child by somebody of the same sex, even though I can't ever remember it and it never happened to me, because that is why I'm gay today, or that is why I'm same-sex attracted today. Um, people so, some people so believe that that they sort of say, I have to have had the experience even though I haven't. My experience is very similar to, to Luke's, is it, it just felt natural. It, there's no particular trigger, there's no sort of particular thing I can think, well, that's why I'm attracted to people of the same sex. It just felt as natural to me as heterosexuality felt very natural to my peers as I grew up. There's no particular cause. There's no particular trigger. And that can be really hard, and we've already sort of alluded to that and answered the questions. But what I, love, what I love reflecting on is that the God who is sovereign over all things is not sitting up in heaven thinking, oh, my goodness, Ed Shaw is same-sex attracted. That is a disaster. That was not meant to happen. Our sovereign God is able to take and use things that are difficult, things that are hard, to make us more and more like him. 
So this thing that felt natural to me, that God says is not good for me, is also something that God has and does take and use to make me more and more like Jesus and to help other people become more and more like him too. And so instead of keeping my focus on, oh, let's try and think, find out what caused it so that I can change, I, like Luke, am trying to think, actually, no, this is my experience of life. Uh, There are things about it that I do need to repent of, but actually, most of all, I need to rejoice in this gift that God has given me to help myself become more and more like Jesus and to help other people become more and more like Jesus too. And let me tell you, the thing that God has most used in my life to help me become more and more like Jesus and to help me help others become more and more like Jesus too is my experience of same-sex attraction. Great. I'm going to shake things up, and rather than working backwards, I'm going to go and get the one from the top. Uh, The first question we have was, uh, what about in the secular media, in the mainstream films and TV programs and things like that we see where um, gay relationships, homosexuality is becoming more and more a normal part of it. And it feels like you can't watch a TV series without there being gay couples in it, without there being that. Should we watch it? Should we not watch it? Because it doesn't agree with our values. Um, And I care particularly about this because I've got a bit of background in filmmaking and in media stuff myself. And the thing I've learned through doing that is that actually every bit of media we watch has messages and has uh, values that underpin it. Sometimes those are really overt and really clear. Sometimes those are much more subtle. Uh, And if I was to refuse to watch any media at all which had anything I disagreed with, I would not be able to watch any program. I would not be able to listen to any radio station. I would not be able to uh, sing any song um, on the radio because... Actually, our culture has a, has a radically different, different view of sexuality and sex and the values that underpin those. Um, so what I think is, is probably a helpful way of thinking about it is actually how do I engage critically with what I listen to? How do I look at the, the different messages? How do I identify the values behind them and think, do I believe this? Do I agree with this? What do I actually think about this? And using um, programs and using the radio and the songs we sing on the radio and things like that um, to identify what are the values of the world around me and what, what's my response to that as a Christian? How does that measure up against Scripture? How does that measure up against what God says? Um, I, I also think, though, that there are some things which it is helpful for me to avoid. And it's good for me to say, actually, I'm not going to watch that because this isn't going to be helpful to me. This film has such graphic scenes in it which, if I'm watching this film, I know really all I'm doing is watching it so I can watch those scenes, because actually I kind of want to. Actually, maybe it's not healthy for me to watch that scene. Maybe it's not good for me to watch that movie. Um, uh, and so I think from that side of view, that's, that's kind of my approach to this. I think we need to be thinking critically about all the things we, we consume, because we're in our youth group and we're in our church for maybe a few hours a week, but for the other hundred of, hundreds and hundreds of hours in the week, I don't know if there is hundreds of hours in a week, we are absorbing messages from the world around us. We're absorbing the messages from TV, from films, from billboards, from all these things. So we want to be able to approach those, um, looking at those with yeah, some clarity. Um, I'm going to return to the, the workable order rather than... We're going to go to... Um, what about falling in love with someone? What do I do when I fall in love with somebody, which is something that happens every so often, sometimes quite a bit? The sort of thing I'm trying to train myself to do when I fall in love with somebody is thinking... What, what, do I, what, do I, what have I fallen in love with? If I've fallen in love with somebody's beauty, I need to think about how much more beautiful Jesus is. If I, I've fallen in love with how, how kind somebody is, I want to think about how much more kind Jesus is. If I've fallen in love with whatever about somebody, I just want to sort of think, what have I fallen in love with? 
What about them do I find so lovable? And how can I persuade myself that actually Jesus is, is much more worthy of my love and affection? And I find that really helpful because the sort of people that I fall in love with tend to be heterosexual people. And um, so my story is a you know, story of unrequited love, and it'd be pretty tragic because I go around falling in love with people who are never going to love me back in the way that I want to. But when it comes to falling in love and in some ways making that link to Jesus, the great thing about that is that when I think of how this person can point me to Jesus, it's not unrequited love when it comes to Jesus. Jesus does love me. Jesus loves me with a passion that far outstrips any passion that any human being has felt for any other human being. Jesus loved me enough to die for me. Jesus loved me enough to come to this earth as a baby, to live a human life and to die in agony for me. And so I'm just trying to, as it were, take that experience of falling in love, think, what I love about this person, how much more is Jesus all those things? And how wonderful it is that Jesus loves me. Great. Uh, we had that question. What about gay married couples, uh, same-sex couples who have got married, who have then become Christians and thought, actually, we think God's calling us to celibacy. What, what's right? Should they get divorced? What does that look like? Um, I actually had the privilege of, of going out to America a few years ago to do a, uh, a placement with a church. And um, while I was there, I met with a number of people uh, in different contexts. And one of the people I met with was a woman who had been uh, in a relationship. They had adopted a child, her and her uh, wife, uh, or a civil partner at the time. And uh, they then had both become Christians and thought, ah, what do we do? How do we respond? For them, they actually ended up buying houses next door to each other, and their son would go between the houses. Not everyone has that possibility. But I think we need to acknowledge this is it's a bit of a gray area, but it's one that I hope we have to grapple with tons and tons and tons in the future. Because if we're having to deal with um, gay couples who are deciding they feel God's calling to celibacy, that means gay couples are coming to know Jesus. And I think that's a wonderful, brilliant thing. So I hope we can grapple with this lots and lots. Um, I guess the question um, that you'd be going through as a couple in that situation is, if you've reached that point, you're probably thinking that marriage, biblical marriage, is between a man and a woman. And therefore, there, there isn't really gay marriage or secular marriage or civil marriage or all these other things. There's only really marriage, and that's the marriage as God has designed it to be. And so if that's how um, you've reached that point as a, as a gay couple, um, then I would imagine that would probably play into your thinking. But I'm not gay married, so I sort of am only answering on what I imagine would be the situation if I was. Um, I think if you then feel you are called to singleness and called to celibacy, then you would be back into the same boat that any single or celibate person would be. In terms of how you respond to that on a civil level with the documents and the legal side of marriage, um, you might think that this doesn't therefore count as, as marriage. I guess that would be my thoughts. Okay, the last two questions. Somebody asked a really good question about um, getting into a relationship with somebody um, who... Uh, doesn't particularly associate with either being male or female, non-binary, and um, perhaps experiences gender dysphoria. I think that was the question. Um, that is one of those questions it's really hard to answer in this sort of uh, context because it would depend on uh, what that person believes, why that person believes that, um, where they're coming from, if they're a Christian or not. And that's a sort of uh, really difficult issue that I think you'd want to sort of sit down and talk about with them to find out where they're coming from. Uh, what they understand about sex and marriage, what they understand about gender, uh, what exactly they're saying by using some of that language. 
And then, again, as we said again and again, and I really encourage you to do this, you know, talk to older, wiser Christians about the situation and help them speak uh, God's truth into the situation, help them pray to you for wisdom uh, in that particularly complex uh, situation. It's a great question, really hard to answer in this context. Uh, you might want to join us in the tent later to get a little bit more wisdom. And the final question was, asked, what about people who uh, protest against gay pride or protest against uh, gay rights movements and things like that who might hold up placards saying uh, God disapproves or God hates gays or things like that. Um, I think my, uh, my heart cries, I actually feel really sad when I see some of that stuff happening. So I think for many of those uh, LGBT people walking in that parade, perhaps the only contact they come into with Christians are those people at a pride event who are holding up a placard saying God hates you. And I think, is that the one interaction with a Christian that I want somebody to have, the message that God hates you. It really isn't, because actually I think God loves you. God loves every single person, and I want to be able to build relationships with people so that they can know that God loves them. That will at times involve conversations of truth and, and, and things which might be a little bit more difficult, but ultimately I want them to know that God loves them. And I, I think there's a time and a place um, for certain things. And as we think about how do we respond to those outside of the church who perhaps live lives which are really different to how we think we were meant to live, um, is the way I'm responding to that person going to point them to Jesus or harden them to Jesus? Is it going to bring them into the kingdom or is it actually going to make them turn away from the kingdom? It, it's a real pity that for so many LGBT people who are looking for a, a community with loving open arms... That is found in the LGBT community and not in the church. As the church, regardless of how we feel um, that should be worked out in lives, we have a message which says this is the most loving, the most welcoming, the best place and the best community for you to be a part of. Um, and so I think it'd be great if we can communicate that at all times and in all situations.